Well, this is what happens when you don't drink caffeine regularly anymore. You have an inch of it and you're like, so do you want to start a band? <laughs> we should buy a bar. I have so many great ideas. <laughs> it's like backstage, but there's no stage. It's the standby for places green room. Welcome to In the Green Room. Before we begin, we would like our listeners to know that this episode includes content about sexual abuse and suicide. Hi, welcome back to another episode of In the Green Room. I'm your host, Margie Zarcone, and I am joined today by Alexandra Kopko. Hi, Alex. Hi. Who is playing Miss Julie in August Strindberg's Miss Julie with us at Standby for Places. Alex, <laughs> thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to be here. Of course, of course. So, uh, Miss Julie, written at the turn of the 20th century, sort of ushered in a new era of an interest of female subjectivity in theater and a turn into more naturalistic theater. And Miss Julie is like the quintessential example of that. Uh, However, August Strindberg, as most of us know from reading the preface and knowing a bit about him, was a pretty big misogynist and some of the misogyny inevitably is going to seep into his depiction of the title character. As an actor, how do you grapple with this? It's a great question. Uh, well, if you're going to do classical or pre-modern theater, uh, you're going to run into that problem because even the ones who aren't like purposeful misogynists uh, still reflect and absorb the misogyny of their time. Um, But I don't think that negates them in terms of, I I don't think that means that there's stories we can't tell. So coming coming at a play that's written in a specific time, very of its time. I mean, Miss Julie was written as such a reflection of its time period. I mean, Miss Julie was basically written to showcase naturalism. Like it it wasn't like, I've got a great idea for a story. I can't wait to tell it. I, at least the impression I get is that it was like, all right, how can we show this off in a way that like rocks the audience's pants and makes them totally on board for this like new style. Oh my gosh, this play. So it's, it's so of its time. Um, and, Strindberg didn't seem to like women very much or respect them very much. So as an actor, you know, you can't, well, I can tell you how I approach it, which is that. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. I, I, I can't speak for all actors, but I can tell you that I personally am a devout feminist. Um, and I'm okay doing plays that were written by people who aren't because art is organic and art evolves and a well-written piece can be done in different ways and can be approached with different intentions with context and intertextuality and um, understanding. Creativity. I, I always knew about Miss Julie and I remember reading it in college and thinking it was a sexist piece of schlock. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I I didn't like the play very much, but the thing about Miss Julie is it's the, I'd always heard of it as the character that all actresses wanted to play. 
because it's meaty. Like there's so much to do and to think. It's the King Lear of naturalism. Yes. Yes. And um, so I was, when I was invited to do it, that's what I was excited by. I was like, oh, this will be a fun challenge. And part of that challenge is the fact that I don't agree with the playwright on his views of gender. But when I started working on it, I personally found that that didn't come up very much for me because I was, you know, I understood it and then I put it aside and I said, I'm just going to approach this as text. I'm not going to bring in author intent because that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to tell Strindberg's feelings on his story. We're here to tell the story the way that we want to tell it. And it's amazing what you can do without changing any text and, you know, just, just by knowing going in the story you want to tell and the values that you want to uphold. And Alex, that's a true testament to you as an artist and as an actor, because it's very difficult to not judge playwrights and not judge the character. I judge him as a person. Right. Right. (laughs) I don't think me and Strindberg would ever hang out. No, Um, No. But I don't, listen, there are a lot of great artists who were terrible to women or terrible to black people or terrible to gay people or are terrible to trans people. It, it's an unfortunate truth that one doesn't negate the other and that art and artists are complex and a lot of them have very poor values, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the art itself is bad. It's just a factor of the art, if that makes any sense. That's a really, really great way to put that. It's almost as if the physical text and story has enough there that it can evolve with time as long as actors approach it with the same, as you said, like with the same care and sensitivity. Right. And the audience. Like once once art is out there, it's not really the the creators anymore. I mean, it is to a degree, but it becomes something else. It becomes what the audience or the reader or the viewer make of it. And it kind of takes on a life of its own. So as long as the the um the 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 creators who continue to explore it and the audiences who continue to receive it grow and progress and bring in better values and more nuanced perspectives right and it'll continue to have a place in the world yeah i i think that's a, a piece of art becomes irrelevant when it can't be told in a way that is organic and, and, and alive. Do you think that's why we keep coming back to it? Well, if I'm being honest, I think there's many reasons people come back to old text. And one of them is because they want to put a new spin on it and explore it with their own perspectives. And another is people recognize the title, so they'll attend the show, which means money. Um, I think it's both. Yes. It just has to be adjusted so that the story being told is a cautionary one and the right values come across. Um, But that's hard to do. If you're going to continue to revisit stories with outdated values, even though they're still very prevalent under the surface in our current society, um, the onus falls on you to responsibly present it and present it with context and make sure that the right 
that, that the audience gets the full picture and understands that it's not in a vacuum. I, I'm very proud of the work we did on this play. I'm very proud of, of Grady and how well it was directed. I'm really proud of us and, and the work we put in. Um, and I think that we did a good job telling the story. That doesn't mean that there weren't some things that made us be like, <laughs> oh, Strindberg. <laughs> like, of course. Nothing. I mean, it was written how many years ago? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You got to be able to laugh at these people a little bit or else. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the absence of context and the absence of uh, critique made me be like, Ugh, whatever. <laughs> it makes it uninteresting. too. It makes it uninteresting. And, and actually, I'm glad to have had been given the chance to revisit it because now I have such an interest in the play. Like I... I was amazed at how much I enjoyed working on it and how much it piqued my curiosity and um, gave me stuff to think about. I, I'm very happy that I was given the chance to revisit it, but, you know, I, I got to revisit it with full context and we talked about all the problems, you know? Right. And critiquing isn't canceling. It's assessment. It's reading assessment. comprehension. It's not, <laughs> first of all, I mean, like, not to get political here, but I, I personally don't believe cancel culture actually exists. I think it's a, it's a buzzword like politically correct that certain people are using to bludgeon the other side with. I don't think it's, it's not real. It's you do something shitty and people don't want to hang out with you anymore. That's the natural social consequence. And it's been happening since the dawn of time. It just has a name. People started calling it canceling now, and the name was catchy. <laughs> so in your rehearsal process, was there a decent amount of table work without actually table work where you talked about the context and the different subjects and gender and gender roles? How did, how did you create that? open space. Yeah, I mean, we, it was a relatively short rehearsal period. Um, but Grady is a dramaturg, like in his soul. And so he came informed. And I think we all came informed. And I think there, there was a general understanding that we all got the backstory, mm -hmm. so that we were able to just get straight to the work. And that was really helpful, because when working on a piece like this, where there's you know, verbal abuse and there's like questions about consent and there's self-harm and things like that. You need the rehearsal to be safe. You need everybody involved to be um, safe, basically. You need everybody involved to understand the fundamental values that are going into it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how with our, with the cast that we had, mm -hmm. it was a safe room. And so we did talk about gender as it came up. We talked about, you know, Miss Julie mentions a few times her own kind of conflicted views on her own gender and her confusion and frustration with that confusion that she has. Mm. And it's, it's really interesting talking about that as somebody in, you know, the beginning of the 21st century where we have all this language. Trans people existed back then and and so did non-binary people and people people who 
maybe identified with their gender, but not the prescribed rules about their gender and things like that. The spectrum existed back then. I but always now, if you're reading the Bible and the Bible says not to do something, like don't dress up as a woman if you're a man, that means that someone was that. That means people were doing it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And now, but now we have this lexicon we have the language and it's mainstream um and it's becoming more and more mainstream it's not new it's just that now we're better equipped with the right words and a more thorough understanding of the science and the psychology and the sociology around it and i don't think miss julie i don't think julie is trans but she was questioning of her gender and I think that if she'd lived longer, she, she, and, and had a healthy situation, she might have been able to explore what that meant for her. But I don't think she, she had gotten there yet by the time that we see her in this play. But she was questioning whether she was a woman, whether she was a boy, like she was raised as a boy, whether, whether, um, what being a woman means, what being a, a man means, and, and all of that. And, and the fact that gender was very weaponized by her parents right. in order to like turn her against the other one basically meant that she was very mixed up. And I don't mean mixed up like she didn't know her gender. That's mixed up. I don't feel that way at all. I think questioning oh, of one's gender is a great, is a healthy and normal natural thing. And gender is a spectrum just like anything else. But she felt mixed up about how she felt about gender and we did talk about that a little, and we talked about gender roles at the time and how her situation, there's a part in the play where he, she asks Jean what, she, what he would do if he was her. And he starts to answer, and then he says, well, actually, if I were you, an unmarried woman in this situation, I would take the final route out. You mentioned creating a safe environment, especially when there are topics that are, what's the word I'm looking for? Topics that are intense. I mean, that are intense ta and taboo, I guess, but just there should be a safe environment no matter what you're doing. If you're rehearsing Mamma Mia, you need the rehearsal room to be safe. Every rehearsal room should be safe particularly if the subject matter being explored is something that could be triggering, something that involves a certain type of vulnerability. Like Miss Julie deals with the self-worth of a woman who, who crosses a sexual line. And that's something that a lot of us contemporary women have wrestled with, the internalized shame that we're taught and the concept of virginity that we're taught and stuff that is incredibly hard to unlearn. And so if we're going to be exploring that and same for, for men or anybody else, same, same, all genders deserve this kind of safety. And like in this instance, who, who the person playing Jean also deserves a safe space because they're exploring internalized anger and and 
and things like that. And, and it has to be a room where everybody trusts each other and everybody feels safe. Otherwise the work isn't going to be good. The work is going to be bad, first of all. And second of all, nobody deserves to feel unsafe at work. Right. They just don't, you know, I've worked with people who use their role or the subject matter of the play as an excuse to exercise their own problems. And that's when you get abusive fellow actors. And that's when you get people who make the the workplace hostile. Um, that, that can't be what we're doing. Yeah, it's not therapy. You, you need to have that under control before you come into the rehearsal room. Yeah, the rehearsal um, room is not a place where you can work out your own internal demons. And It's not. Personal. That might be a side effect. Like it might, I was able to, you know, explore my judgment of others and things like that there's there's definitely growth and exploration that happens to you as a person when you work on a role or work in a play with roles that involve personalities or character traits that you might have some hang-ups about and also hopefully if you do your job right then maybe the audience will be have a chance to do some exploration within themselves and it's it's good to encourage growth and questioning and curiosity it's not good to weaponize any of that, to bludgeon your fellow actors or anybody else on the creative team uh, with any of that. Um, it's, it's a line. When actors try to get away with poor behavior, despicable behavior, and put it on them getting into character or, their, off. or their personal method, it is just a scapegoat. You know what Dame Judy Dench does? She shows up and she finds her light and she knows her lines and she acts them. And then when the, when the take is over, she chats and she's fine. And I'm not saying that's the only way to do things, but act, being an actor is zero excuse to treat anybody like crap. Zero. And if you're using it as an excuse, you're just weaponizing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but it, it does tend to be, I, I can't think of a single female actor who has gotten away with that you wouldn't I can think able, of some you wouldn't Betty be davis did way. some stuff you know i can think of some actresses who exhibited diva like behavior but then they were called divas and difficult and it there, there were their reputations nobody was like what an auteur no like nobody was like wow what an artist they're so lost in their work they were like this woman is a nightmare and so it's a huge it's I can't tell you how good it felt to rehearse with Devin and Kevin and Grady and and just feel how different it was from the first time I read the play because suddenly I felt safe and Kevin was bringing Kevin brought so much um uh charm and likability and earnestness to Jean so that suddenly I wasn't spending the whole play trying to justify why she would like this guy in the first place because he's so mean and I was it happened naturally he did so much of my work for me because because he was he was authentic and likable and and chose made positive choices and let this guy be a whole person so, and that also made the, the flip when the flip happens and suddenly he's calling her a whore and telling her she deserved it and letting all his rage at the upper classes and women come out at her. It's a huge shock and it's devastating mm-hmm. 
to the listener and to me. Like I, it really, I, I can't tell you how easy he made my job because I, I was able to just listen and respond having done my own homework about my own character. I was able to just participate because he, he brought so much to the character of Jean and I felt safe working with him. No part of me was going, protect yourself, put your wall up because you know, you can't, it's not a safe space with this guy. Because when um, you feel safe, amazing things happen. Yeah. You feel the, the space and the flexibility to play mm -hmm. and to try something. Exactly. And just because you are playing a dangerous situation. All the more reason to make. You feel in danger. Yeah. All the more reason to, can you, do you know how bad, listen, I, I have PTSD diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder from losing friends to suicide. But can you imagine how, can you like, can you imagine how bad my performance would be if my PTSD was triggered because I didn't feel safe talking about the subject? Like, and, and I, and I've been the victim of sexual assault and I've been harassed and I've been called the things that Jean calls Julie. And if I didn't feel 110% that that was not really happening to me, then I wouldn't have been Miss Julie. I would have been Alex feeling scared and feeling sad and my own shit would have come up and gotten in the way of, of doing the work. And so when, when people, I mean, like, listen, I can talk for an hour and a half about the toxicity of the acting school theater industrial complex. I, I listen, but when people talk about like, you know, the magic happens outside your comfort zone and you should feel scared and you should push yourself and take risks, like, yes and no, you have to know that you are safe in order to take creative risks. Right. Otherwise there's not going to be room for them. There's not going to be gets, room for play. misconstrued. The room has to be safe in order for that exploration to actually happen in a, in a useful way. And it means me. trying a new voice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or, or trying it, uh, eliminating something, a preconceived notion and taking that out of it and saying, you know what, I'm going to pretend this is, I'm, I'm going to pretend that this doesn't apply, and I'm just going to try the scene just with this stuff and see what that does. It means it's, not wor worrying about looking stupid. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean being unsafe. And so I, I am very grateful for the, the room that we had was a safe one, and it made my job so much easier. <laughs> Alex, we touched on this a little bit, but why do you think ultimately... Miss Julie made the decision that she did at the end of the play. Uh, I have a really dull answer to that question, which is I think Strindberg sure. thought it made a more exciting ending. Um, what about you as the actor? What, yeah, those are two, I guess those are two different questions. Why do I think that Strindberg wrote that ending? Because it would knock the socks off the audience. It made the stakes really high and it was dramatic. It kind of seems like it was written more to serve the style rather than to tell a story. And it just so happens that Strindberg is a good writer. He's an asshole, but he's a good writer. And so what you get is a play with a whole, not, whole lot of nuance and, um, or room for nuance. 
if that makes sense. Right. And um, characters who are still being explored over a hundred years later. But I'm not sure that the intention was about the character development and the storytelling. I think it was more about the style. To me, at least, it seems like he made the decision like, well, this is what she has to get. This is how that she cannot go on living. She needs this to- This is her punishment. This is her punishment. That occurred to me, but I decided that for the purposes of my work, I couldn't think about that. So I, I eschewed that really, really quickly. Um, and just tried to be like really, really in good faith about it because otherwise the work would be cynical and it would be on the other side of things. And I, I didn't want that. I wanted to be earnest. So, oh, and that can be his reasoning. Oh yeah. He can have all the reasonings that he wants. That doesn't mean that that's how I'm going to think about it. We did talk about this in the rehearsal room a few times about how there are points in the play where they can make another choice and they don't like, there's a point in the play where the, the people are coming and, and there's sort of a sense of excited panic and, and where do we go? What do we do? We can't, they can't catch us together here in the kitchen. And John says, you have to come up to my room. And she says, really? Okay. And then they go, but they, they if she could have just gone up to his room and hidden, or he could have just gone up to his room and she could have said, well, I'm the lady of the house and I was hungry. I came here to look for food. Nobody would have cared. There were, there were a million ways out of that and they chose the one that they chose. And we talked a lot about the nuances about that, about the power dynamics, about if there was any coercion going on on either side. We, we, we discussed that a lot. And with the ending, it's a similar situation where I, I, I understand that I'm a modern woman approaching this with a modern personal perspective, but I do think there were ways out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, she could have run away. I don't think she wanted to do that to her father. She could have gone straight to her father and just said the thing about the money and said, and just said, it's a mistake. I accidentally took the money. She didn't have to say anything. Nobody had to say anything about Jean. There is the worry that she might be pregnant, a valid concern, but there are she begins the play making an abortion potion for her dog to drink. So clearly that's occurred to her. Mm. And I think that, it, you know, not to give Strindberg a compliment, but there's something in the writing that shows her exhaustion cat her exhaustion catching up to her hmm. so that by the time she's at the end, she's not even crying anymore. She's just so tired. And it's not just about this situation. She's exhausted that her mother made her hate men. And she's exhausted that her father made her hate women and that she doesn't know who she is. And that her fiance that she briefly had couldn't be what she needed and she's exhausted and she's confused and I think all that catches up with her she's in an extremely fragile mental state because she's been up all night been through a trauma and was drinking all night mm -hmm. so her mindset isn't good her body doesn't feel good and everything that's ever been in the back of her mind as as a source of pain is all very present. 
it's just triggered everything. And we've all been there. We've all we have. Yes. Um, that's how I justified it. But as a view, as a listener, as an audience member, as a reader, as just me, Alex, mm-hmm. I'm sad that she made that choice because there were ways out. Um, but that being said, mental health is an extremely complicated thing. And, you know, like I said, I, I have PTSD. I struggle with my own mental health issues. And I know, I don't, I don't know what that feels like, but I know what it feels like to feel like your brain and what's happening in your brain is bigger than you. Right. But I hope that people listening can, can hold the idea that this woman is at the end of her rope and she's run out of hope. And the thing that she thought was going to make everything feel better has turned into a massively traumatic experience. And she's at her lowest point. And can also hold the fact that Strindberg was a misogynist who was writing in a time where it was widely accepted that a deflowered woman needed punishing or was ruined. So both are true. I didn't like the play until I worked on it. I didn't like Julie at all until I started playing her and then I loved her so much. Um, And it's had so much empathy for her, but I'm also, you know, nine years older than when I read it. And a lot can happen in nine years. You know what I mean? A lot can, you can, you can become a lot less judgmental, particularly of other women in, in your twenties. That leads into my final question. Do you think the way we read or consume media and stories now being more informed and having the vocabulary Mm -hmm. do you think that people see miss julie differently do you think actors would read miss julie differently i'll be honest and this might make me seem really unimaginative but when i was working on it i couldn't imagine it being read any other way like i couldn't once i was working on it i was like why did i hate her she's such a victim in this situation Um, And obviously it's a little more complicated than that because there's two power dynamics happening. Intersectionality, baby. Baby. But but she is, even though she makes certain choices and hurts other people, she's still a victim of something. Um, And so I had so much empathy for her and so much frustration on her behalf. And I... And I really couldn't, I was like, I can't even remember what I thought. Like, I, I just, I can't imagine what it would be like to approach this not with a post-feminist lens. So I guess it, it's going to come down to, but, but another actress might look at it and see something I don't see. And that could also be extremely exciting to, to explore. Um, as long as we're not going backward, I'm excited for all exploration. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This was a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so good to see you. Of course. And thank you for listening to this episode of In the Green Room presented by Standby for Places. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out Alex as Miss Julie in Standby's production of Miss Julie by August Strindberg. And 
stay tuned for the upcoming production of Twelfth Night, directed Twelfth Night. by Alex, which drops soon. You guys definitely listen to it. It's a killer cast. I'm so excited. I can't wait for you to hear it. We're very excited. Thank you so much. See you next time. Thank you. Bye. I don't know. Misogyny is complicated. And a lot of misogynists think they're feminists. I know a bunch of them. Who, who think, who are like, I think there should be a matriarchy, and then they treat women like garbage. So, yeah. We stand safe rooms in this house. Yes!